welcome to Misunderstood, a podcast dedicated to better understanding MS and learning to live well with MS. I'm your host, Katie Sloan. A few reminders as we begin. I am not an expert. I'm just a person like you living with MS and trying to make the best of it. Misunderstood is based on my personal experience, what I've learned from my doctors, other care providers, and my own solutions-oriented research and pattern-finding obsession. While the majority of the information I share has been vetted by doctors, I am not a doctor. My intention is you use the information shared here as a springboard for discussion between you and your doctor regarding your future care options. And lastly, MS impacts each of us uniquely. I hope to shine a light on a wide range of approaches and strategies for living better with MS, but what you choose to do with that information is always your choice, and what works for one may not work for all. Last week, we talked about strategies to help us better manage the roller coaster ride that is living with a chronic illness like MS. We looked at feelings of overwhelm, disappointment, and a few different ways to create a better sense of balance in our lives, including strategies of acceptance and preparation. Just like we prepared for fire evacuation, Eric and I also had some really powerful conversations about preparing for the future in terms of my MS or other unexpected occurrences in our lives. By doing so, we both feel much better equipped for whatever comes our way. And while I hope not to have another exacerbation, I'm hopeful that I'll be able to ride that crazy roller coaster just a little bit better by being physically and emotionally prepared. This week, we're going to take some time to explore the world of CBD and medicinal marijuana, also affectionately referred to as weed, flower, or cannabis, to name just a few of its many nicknames. This is a hot topic for us to look at now, as a number of states are including legalization of medicinal and or recreational marijuana usage on our ballots in the coming election. Now, I want to first say, if this is a topic you currently strongly oppose, I hope you'll still listen in, as the latest research is overwhelmingly positive, and there was a lot I didn't even know that I found incredibly interesting, helpful, and hopeful. In this episode, we'll answer the most frequently asked questions about CBD and THC, common misperceptions, how CBD and THC can help with MS, a little about legality and history, some specific strains of cannabis recommended for MS, and edibles, topicals, and even some products you can learn to make for yourself at home. Lots to cover, so let's get started. This week's gratitude is for my local MS support group. While our group has temporarily shrunk a bit during COVID, since not everyone is thrilled about using Zoom for virtual meetings, there's still a good turnout. And every time we meet, I learn something really helpful, since almost everyone in the group has been living with MS longer than I have. And they're also just really smart and compassionate people. During our share out at our meeting earlier this week, I shared that I'm nervous for my upcoming disability hearing this Friday and mostly about traveling to the Bay Area next week for an MRI. Usually, that's no problem, and I actually enjoy zipping up for a couple of days, staying with friends, seeing family, running errands to fill the cooler of all our old favorites. But with COVID, it's not an option to stay overnight, and my usual stops along the way that make the drive manageable for me are also not options at this time. I was pretty nervous about driving over seven hours in one day and to travel to a county that has much worse COVID numbers than mine. And in order to make it happen safely, I'd have to drag Eric and Ryson, our pup, along with me. But my doctor had convinced me it was necessary to see me in person this time and to have my MRI, which he really wanted me to have at Stanford, since I haven't had one in almost two years. So... I had been gearing up for the trip, but definitely not happy about it and feeling a significant increase in my anxiety as the days went by that was getting increasingly difficult to manage. At our group meeting, two members who also received their medical care at Stanford informed me that they regularly use a local MRI facility that has upgraded their MRI machine to be the same caliber as Stanford's. 
and they recommended that I do the MRI here, 20 minutes from home, and even though I thoroughly enjoy seeing my doctor in person, request a virtual appointment, which we have done in the past. I immediately felt a huge rush of relief wash over me, and at that precise moment, I realized just how much I had wanted to say no. So with that clarity of my inner voice and with their support, I felt strong enough to advocate for myself and inform my doctor of the new plan rather than ask permission. So my sincere thanks today to Elizabeth, Karen, Doug, and Linda, and the rest of the group that wasn't able to make it this week, but who often also provide tremendous support to all of our fellow group members. I'm clearly still learning to listen to the voice within. Thank you for helping me on that quest and supporting me. I'm so grateful to have such a wonderful local MS family. Let's dive right into today's topic, since my goal is for listeners to leave this episode with a fairly comprehensive understanding of medicinal marijuana. The first thing we're going to look at today is CBD, since CBD is huge in the news, emerging as a powerful symptom management tool, most notably for pain, sleep, and mental health. And it's the biggest existing rationale for more broad legalization of marijuana. We'll also look at common misperceptions about CBD, as well as the differences between CBD and THC, and the differences between hemp and marijuana. Confused yet? CBD is one of over 100 identified cannabinoids present in cannabis plants, and accounts for up to 40% of the plant's extract. One of the most important things to mention right away about CBD is that no, CBD itself does not get us high. At all. Cannabidiol, or CBD, is completely non-psychoactive on its own. Now, it understandably gets confusing, because some CBD is made from marijuana and others are made from hemp. What does that even mean? It's a common misconception that hemp and marijuana are two different species of plant. In fact, they're not distinct species at all. They're just two different names for cannabis, which is a type of flowering plant. And while science doesn't differentiate between hemp and marijuana, the law does. Legally, the key difference between the two is tetrahydrocannabinol, or THC, content. THC is one of many cannabinoids, or chemicals, found in the cannabis plant that is psychoactive component of marijuana, and the one that's primarily responsible for the high many people associate with cannabis. So, it all comes down to THC content. Hemp plants and marijuana plants are both the same species, but legally, hemp is defined as a cannabis plant that contains 0.3% or less THC, while marijuana is a cannabis plant that contains more than 0.3% THC. CBD itself can be derived from both hemp and marijuana plants. When a cannabis plant contains a lot of THC and very little CBD, smoking it gets people high, and the plant is considered marijuana. When it contains mostly CBD and less than 0.3% THC, then by law it is a hemp plant. So, since hemp plants have such a minute amount of THC in them, or less than 0.3%, and often quite less, we will not experience any high from CBD extracted from hemp plants. If we're someone who is still very concerned about THC content, we can take it a step further, since when we purchase CBD, we can find a range of options, from the more potent, full-spectrum, to a more limited, THC-free product. What's the difference? It varies by company, but a highly reputable and third-party tested CBD company that I love, called Lazarus Naturals, has products available both in full spectrum, which contain, in their words, high concentrations of CBD, as well as a variety of cannabinoids, terpenes, and other phytochemicals, and less than 0.3% THC by dry weight. They also state that their THC-free products are made with CBD isolate. 
They do acknowledge that there may be trace amounts of THC found in most hemp-derived CBD products. So, one of the big questions that people ask is if they can test positive on a drug test by using CBD. CBD alone will not show up on drug tests, but since many hemp-derived CBD products do contain trace amounts of THC, those may show up on a screening, depending on the lab testing threshold used by your employer. You can drastically reduce the likelihood of a positive test by using hemp-derived CBD if this is a concern for either you or your employer. As tests become more sophisticated over time and laws are adjusted to be better informed about the inherent differences between CBD and THC, things will change for the better. But if your current employer has strict rules, you'll need to take that into consideration before deciding to use CBD. Let's get back to the cannabis plant for a bit. The plant genus cannabis contains three species, cannabis sativa, cannabis indica, and cannabis ruderalis. CBD is derived from cannabis sativa and is bred specifically to contain high levels of CBD and low levels of THC. Cannabis sativa, which is below 0.3% THC as we've already mentioned, is classified as hemp. We'll be talking a lot more today about sativa and indica, but I didn't know much about ruderalis until I researched for this episode, so I wanted to share here that ruderalis is a little-known variety of cannabis known for its ability to grow in conditions that would kill most other indica or sativa cannabis plants. Ruderalis cannabis originates from Asia and Central and Eastern Europe, areas with climates too harsh for other cannabis species to survive. No wonder I didn't know much about it since I live in California where we are blessed with the optimal climate for the preferred indica and sativa cannabis plants. Briefly, climate, soil, water, and genetics all dictate how well cannabis will grow in a geographic region. Sativas with their airy bud structure can tolerate hotter, more humid climates. And indicas grow dense and resinous buds as protection against the elements and the cold. Outdoors, most cannabis thrives in climates akin to the Mediterranean region. This climate can be described as warm to hot in the summer, followed by mild fall weather with minimal rainfall. Cannabis plants love hot days followed by warm nights. The West Coast, California, Oregon, and some parts of Washington best match this Mediterranean climate in the U.S., in areas with more rain or lower temperatures, the choices of cannabis strains become much more limited. Certain genetics can grow in wetter, drier, colder, or hotter climates. Some regions have cold fall temperatures that require strains with faster flowering periods. Knowing your strain's genetics is just as important as knowing the climate in which you'll be growing. Since not everyone lives in climates suitable for cannabis, greenhouses or indoor gardens with controlled environments can make the most sense. However, it can be extremely expensive to run the necessary complex temperature and moisture controlling systems. Let's now look at the legality of CBD. Hemp-derived CBD products are legal on the federal level in all 50 states and regulated under the 2018 Farm Bill. Marijuana-derived CBD products, which contain 0.3% or more of THC, are still considered illegal by the federal government. Currently, the medical use of cannabis is legalized with a doctor's recommendation in 33 states, four out of five permanently inhabited U.S. territories, and the District of Columbia. Eleven states have legalized recreational marijuana use in the United States. They are Alaska, California, Colorado, Illinois, Maine, Massachusetts, Michigan, Nevada, Oregon, Vermont, and Washington. Washington, D.C. also allows the recreational use of marijuana. For up-to-date information regarding legality in your state, it's important that you consult with your current state laws or places you'll be traveling to ensure your safety and compliance with current regulations. Now, while we're on the topic of legality, let's take a brief step back in history to see how cannabis became illegal in the first place. 
Even the word marijuana itself is quite controversial, which is why most people in the industry now refer to the plant simply as cannabis. Cannabis wasn't always illegal. Cannabis has been available in the United States since the mid-1800s, and in fact, it was the top active ingredient in over 100 medications, many made by earlier iterations of our current pharmaceutical companies. At the time, wealthy Americans who could afford imported goods were going through a hash trend, the most famous being literary celebrity Alexander Dumas. It wasn't until about 1910 that smoking cannabis became popular in America. And why? Between 1910 and 1920, almost a million Mexicans legally immigrated to the United States to seek refuge from a horrendous civil war known as the Mexican Revolution. Mexican immigrants preferred the smoking method of consumption and called the plant marijuana. In 1913, the first bill criminalizing the cultivation of marijuana, often referred to at the time as loco weed, was passed in California because the Board of Pharmacy wanted to regulate opiates and psychoactive pharmaceuticals. This early law paved the way to full-on prohibition of marijuana in the 1930s. In the 30s, the Great Depression had hit the United States, and unfortunately, Hard times often cause us to look for someone else to blame for the problems we face. Due to the recent influx of immigrants, particularly from the South, many Americans, and let's be honest here, many white Americans, began to view cannabis as part of the problem, especially since it was popular in the emerging black jazz and Mexican communities, neither of which white Americans sought to understand nor choose to participate in. Jazz was considered highly suggestive and inappropriate by many at the time, and it wasn't long until 29 states independently banned cannabis. The name most synonymous with creating the negative stigma surrounding cannabis was a man named Harry Anslinger, the first director of the newly founded Federal Bureau of Narcotics in 1930. Here again, there are many variations of what happened, but most sources agree that Anslinger's campaign against cannabis that lasted his tenure of 30 years resulted in the Marijuana Tax Act of 1937, essentially banning it nationwide, despite objections from the American Medical Association, who deeply understood its benefits related to medical usage, especially since, remember, it was a common ingredient in over 100 commonly used medicines. I'll share some of Anslinger's statements that led to the legislation, because regardless of our personal opinions regarding the current social justice movement in our country, I believe it's especially important to understand how dangerous it can be to live in a wonderfully diverse country and yet not seek to understand across lines of difference, a problem we're sadly not better at still today. While I won't quote him much directly, since I find so many of his statements highly offensive this day and age, there are some phrases from his statements that are important to share, such as, quote, Marijuana is the most violence-causing drug in the history of mankind. Quote. And after acknowledging the ethnicity of most marijuana smokers at the time in a non-PC way, he also said, quote, Their satanic music jazz and swing result from marijuana usage, quote. And in another statement, he said that marijuana caused men of races that he felt were less than his race to, quote, think they're as good as, quote, his race, and stated that the primary reason to outlaw marijuana, quote, is its effect on the races that he felt were less than his own and should remain as such. The Bureau of Narcotics made the word marijuana a bad one, and that sentiment spread throughout the country. Early propaganda films, such as Reefer Madness, changed public perception of cannabis, and no longer was cannabis known as a powerful plant substance found in medicines that were widely consumed by Americans all over the country. The Marijuana Tax Act of 1937 federally criminalized cannabis in every U.S. state, with violations resulting in heavy fines or imprisonment. 
All this to say, the word marijuana, while still heavily used today, has a storied history, deeply steeped in race and politics. Some people feel strongly that using the word marijuana ignores a history of oppression against Mexican-American immigrants and African-Americans. I knew some, but not all of this history prior to my research for this episode, and I, for one, from now on, will choose to refer to the cannabis plant as cannabis. We've made progress toward returning to being able to use cannabis for medicinal purposes in 33 states and for both medical and recreational uses in 11. Five states for sure will have some level of cannabis measures on their ballots, New Jersey, Arizona, Montana, South Dakota, and Mississippi. While we're talking about the upcoming election, I also want to dispel some common misconceptions about cannabis so that as voters and potential medicinal cannabis users, we can all make well-informed decisions. There are five main misconceptions about cannabis that we'll cover here, and you'll see why so many of them are so hard to understand, because there's often strong evidence on both sides of the argument. First, cannabis is a gateway drug. The gateway drug theory states that so-called soft drugs, such as cannabis, provide an apparently safe psychoactive experience that makes naive users more open to experimenting with other, harder drugs. While it's true that most people who develop severe problems with drugs, such as cocaine, meth, and heroin, had early experiences with cannabis before trying these other drugs, it's important to note that the vast majority of people who use cannabis actually never go on to use harder substances. Just like it was important to share how cannabis went from a fully legal, widely used compound in a variety of health products to an illegal substance, it's important to understand that the phrase gateway drug was popularized in the 1980s, when some of the harder drug usage took off in greater numbers than ever before, and people were once again looking for someone or something to blame. It's important to remember that there are many factors that can lead to someone forming a substance abuse disorder, including personal, social, genetic, and environmental factors. Now, what's also really interesting is when we look at tobacco products as a gateway drug, because here, there's actually substantial data that proves nicotine makes the brain more susceptible to cocaine addiction. Scientists have long recognized that both cigarettes and alcohol raise the risk for later use of drugs like cocaine. In a recent national survey, over 90% of adult cocaine users between the ages of 18 and 34 had smoked cigarettes before they began using cocaine. So, if we're going to go after what we believe are gateway drugs, the largest targets are actually nicotine and alcohol, two of the human species' favorite vices. Current cigarette smoking among adults in the U.S. is estimated at 37.8 million adults, with more than 16 million Americans living with a smoking-related disease. And while survey results vary, about 35% of American adults say they drink no alcohol. 55% identify as light or moderate drinkers, and 10% drink more than moderately. Alcohol is estimated to cause 90,000 deaths a year in the U.S., directly or indirectly, including more than 11,000 traffic fatalities. So it's pretty clear that there are dangerous substances out there that we can choose to use or not use. And I'm also pretty sure people will fight pretty hard to keep these vices. Stay away from my booze during COVID, says America. Our usage rose 55% in just the first few weeks of March and hasn't slowed down yet. The second misconception is that cannabis is not addictive. And this is also an interesting misconception because when we read a lot of different sources, we find that while cannabis is not physically addictive like nicotine, alcohol, or heroin, it can be psychologically addictive. Scientists call the psychological addiction to cannabis a cannabis dependence disorder. For those of us who use cannabis for pain management, I can definitely attest that once we've experienced its powerful pain relief, we see the value in continuing to use it 
because it makes unbearable pain bearable and life worth living. Research does show that up to 9% of regular cannabis users can develop some level of psychological dependence, according to the National Institute on Drug Use. And individuals who begin using marijuana before age 18 are four to seven times more likely than adults to develop a cannabis use disorder. So, having the best sources of cannabis heavily regulated and only dispensed to adults seems like a good way to ensure our children don't try cannabis or other substances like nicotine or alcohol until they are of age and able to make their own decisions and be responsible for them. Number three, cannabis is stronger today than ever before. This is also an interesting misconception, and it's clear after researching more just why there's still not a simple, definitive answer. As cultivation techniques have become more sophisticated, growers are able to create strains with higher concentrations of THC and CBD. For example, in 1995, one study showed THC levels were generally around 4%, and by 2014 had risen to 12%. So it does mean that there are some strains nowadays that are significantly stronger than previous options. There's also now, however, a wide variety of low-potency THC products available. So rather than back in the day when we bought an eighth of an ounce, which is the typical purchase of cannabis, we often didn't really know what we were getting. Sometimes it was really strong and sometimes not so much. For me personally, as someone who relies on cannabis for pain management, I really appreciate and feel safer using cannabis now that we have more regulation and testing of cannabis, and that we have much greater access to a wider spectrum of quality controlled options. Now I know what I'm getting and how much to use to ease my symptoms. This makes it so much easier to use cannabis responsibly. Lastly. As a fairly consistent user, I can say that I have successfully taken many breaks, some as long as a few months over the years. This has mostly been due to financial limitations, as it can get costly, and certainly has become more costly with the legalization of recreational usage. What these breaks has taught me, though, is that yes, I can live without it. But it's also taught me that it is a medical necessity for me in order to live my best life with MS. Number four, cannabis is all natural. While it's true cannabis is a naturally occurring plant that can be easily grown, just saying that cannabis can't be harmful because it's natural isn't quite true. Natural is not synonymous with safe. Poison ivy, anthrax, and death cat mushrooms are natural too. Plus, many cannabis products aren't entirely natural, so we have to be informed consumers. Pesticides, for example, are often used in the cannabis industry, and just like they can harm us on other crops we consume, they can also be an issue with cannabis, which is why consistent regulation is so important, so we can make informed choices about what we choose to put in our bodies. And number five. It's impossible to overdose on cannabis. By definition, an overdose involves taking a dose that's dangerous. Many of us associate overdoses with death, but officially the two don't always occur together. While there are no recorded fatal overdoses from cannabis on record, it is possible to use too much and have a bad reaction that can leave us feeling out of sorts for a while. This most often happens when we are trying something for the first time or we aren't knowledgeable about the strength of the product we are using. These bad reactions can cause confusion, anxiety, nausea, delusions, increased heart rate or blood pressure, and in extreme cases, even vomiting. So, taking too much cannabis won't kill us, but it could be unpleasant for up to a few hours which is why it's so important for us to be informed and start slow. Let's focus now on the health benefits of cannabis. To better understand the impacts on our bodies, we need to get a little technical first so that we have a better understanding of the endocannabinoid system, or ECS, 
which is a complex cell signaling biological system composed of cannabinoid receptors, internal neurotransmitters called endocannabinoids, and cannabinoid receptor proteins expressed throughout the central nervous system and peripheral nervous system. The ECS is active in regulating a range of functions in the body involved in physiological and cognitive processes. This contributes to the stability of the body's internal environment through modulation of our immune, cardiovascular, and reproductive systems. The ECS is linked to immunity, sleep, mood, learning and memory, appetite and digestion, metabolism, muscle and bone formation, skin and nerve function, and motor control, therefore playing a significant role in holistic health. And in fact, research shows that cannabis can help us in many ways. For ease, I will first focus on the benefits of CBD. Since of the cannabinoids deeply studied thus far, it seems to have the most significant health benefits. It's also what people who don't know much about cannabis are open to learning about first. One recent study showed that CBD can help with anxiety, cognition, pain, and movement disorders. Other studies have shown that CBD successfully halted seizures, inhibited tumor growth, protected brain cells, and reduced inflammation. CBD also provides relief for common aches like anxiety or stress-reduced tension, helping to release the tension and relax our muscles. This can be especially helpful for those of us who experience tension headaches or stress-related lower back pain. CBD can also offer relief if we suffer from chronic pain and pain caused by nerve injury. As a pain medicine, CBD is remarkable because it powerfully relieves pain without diminishing nervous system functioning or causing brain fog. CBD also lowers inflammation and combats oxidative stress. You may ask, if CBD can do all this, why on earth would anyone even want or need to use THC or full flower products? It is true that CBD and THC have many of the same medicinal benefits. They can provide relief from several of the same symptoms. However, as we talked about before, CBD doesn't cause the euphoric effects that occur with THC. Some people may prefer to use CBD because of the lack of this side effect. But when researchers look at which compound is most effective for specific symptoms, generally CBD is best known for treating seizures, inflammation, general pain, mental disorders, inflammatory bowel disease, migraines, depression, and anxiety. So if these are mostly what we're dealing with, CBD makes a whole lot of sense. But there are some symptoms that THC emerges as best for treating. Muscle spasticity, glaucoma, insomnia, and low appetite. And it's actually a tie for anxiety and nausea. And there's another reason why someone might want to up their dosage of THC along with their CBD. Medicinal plants tend to be most powerful when they are used in their natural form, where compounds work together synergistically as nature intended, rather than being chemically separated from one another. And this is certainly true with cannabis. Research suggests that taking them together, along with smaller organic compounds that exist in the cannabis plant, known as terpenes or terpenoids, is often more effective than taking CBD or THC alone. Taken together may provide additional therapeutic benefits, and this interaction is called the entourage effect. A number of studies have shown that combining CBD with THC is the most effective way to treat pain, anxiety, inflammation, epilepsy, cancer, and fungal infections. Some studies also show that CBD may help reduce the unwanted effects of THC while still being able to capitalize on the benefits. Most people find that when they become comfortable with using CBD and want to experience more benefits, they'll start by using a tincture, edible, or capsule that is almost all CBD but has a tiny bit of THC. These are normally sold in ratios, so for example, 
given a 16 to 1 of CBD to THC tincture, even though this product only has a very little amount of THC, someone who has previously used only CBD will likely experience a marked increase in symptom relief. Other common ratios of CBD to THC are 8 to 1 and an even 1 to 1 split. It's a great way to slowly experiment up the scale to find the right fit for each of us and our personal needs. For me, while I was still working coaching teachers, it was important to me to only use CBD. But after my disability retirement and a severe case of optic neuritis and a painful increase in spasticity, I felt ready to try adding THC. For me, that was life-changing. I'll share a little bit about that here in case it's helpful. By adding THC into the mix, I immediately experienced an increase in my ability to sleep deeply, and my pain that accumulated throughout the day would melt away at night. So I got to at least start each day relatively pain-free, which drastically impacted my overall quality of life. It also increased the likelihood that I'd be able to walk the dog or garden in the mornings before stiffening up. I also believe that the synergistic effects of using CBD with THC made a huge difference in my optic neuritis recovery, as I made more improvement after my neurologist felt my recovery had plateaued. It has definitely helped me to better manage my anxiety, which can lead to deep depression if I'm not monitoring it carefully. All of this is great, and yet the biggest improvement has been with my spasticity. I experienced significant spasticity in my neck, shoulders, and trapezius area. It's so painful and debilitating that it can impact my ability to turn my head so it's safe enough for me to drive. CBD with THC has been the only thing that helps, and as I mentioned before, no matter how stiff and painful my muscles get during the day, it's a huge relief to know I will experience relief each night after I take my meds. Now, which meds to take? This is definitely a personal choice, and I'll share a little about my personal journey in learning about CBD and THC, and how what I use has evolved over the past few years as just one avenue for you to consider. With CBD, we don't need to increase our dosage over time because we don't build up a tolerance. The same is not true with THC, but we'll get to that in a bit. As far as CBD goes, it's important to talk with our doctor about dosage. We can also request a one-on-one -on -one consultation at a dispensary if they offer that, which was super helpful to me when I was starting off. Most of the current CBD studies suggest dosages anywhere between 20 and 1500 milligrams per day, which is a huge range. I've read that if we are actively fighting something like MS symptoms or cancer, for example, taking a minimum of 20 milligrams daily is recommended. I started there and then upped my dosage to 50. But with COVID-19 preventing me from attending my typical care routine appointments like acupuncture, cranial sacral therapy, and massage, I have stiffened up quite a bit and recently updated my dosage to 100 milligrams, which has helped a lot. I love the cycling frog capsules from Lazarus Naturals. And I want to mention here that apart from being third-party tested and environmentally conscious in how they source and craft their CBD, they also offer a sizable discount, 60% for veterans, disabled, and low income, which certainly makes it a lot more affordable. It was a really easy process. I was able to get approved with simple paperwork I already had on hand. Anyways, back to dosage. The amount of CBD depends on a range of factors in addition to the condition we're treating. Things like body weight and our individual body chemistry can impact our recommended dosage, so talking with someone knowledgeable is important. Ask them as well if you're taking other medications that may not be good paired with CBD, although that is rare. If your doctor recommends a good starting point of 20 milligrams a day, give it a try. If it still hasn't helped with symptoms, the recommendation is to increase by 5 milligrams each week until it's effectively managing symptoms. You might ask, is it possible to take too much CBD? The answer is likely no. 
Studies have shown that continuous use of CBD, even in doses as high as 1,500 milligrams per day, is tolerated well by humans. Now, THC is different. When I started adding THC to my nightly routine, I started with 5 milligrams, and that was enough. And there are some great edibles like Petra Mints that are only 2.5 milligrams each and Kiva chocolate-covered espresso beans, which are 5 milligrams. These allowed me to start really small, which I was most comfortable with at the time. Remember, with THC, there are some effects on the body that we can feel. They are typically quite pleasant. I'm left feeling like I don't have a care in the world, and there's a lightness to my thoughts freed up from the anxieties and rumination I typically experience. Some people do experience some less pleasant temporary sensations, like increased heart rate, dry mouth, slower reaction times, memory loss, anxiety, appetite changes, or even dizziness. These can be caused by the compound's psychoactive properties. None of these potentially negative sensations are permanent, but for me, I don't like to risk it, so I only use THC when I'm home for the night and know that I won't need to drive anywhere later that day. That said, I do know many people who are much less sensitive to medications than I am and are able to operate normally and drive safely even after they've medicated. It's important here that we each take responsibility for ourselves, know our own personal limitations, and act appropriately within the law. I'll also mention here that ingesting THC is a slow process because we won't feel it until it's absorbed in the body, which for me takes about one and a half to two hours. Cannabis enters the stomach and our blood absorbs it there. Our blood then carries it to our liver and the rest of our body. The stomach absorbs THC much more slowly than our lungs. So when we eat cannabis, the level of THC in the body is lower but the effects last longer. So remember, when you're interested in trying THC for the first time, start small. Many of the edible packages say, eat one, then wait two hours. You can always eat more, but you can't eat less. Okay, now that we understand why adding THC can be so helpful, let's now look at some specific strains. First of all, what are strains? Cannabis plants are designated as cannabis sativa, cannabis indica, or a hybrid. Each of these has its own unique characteristics and effects. CBD and THC exist together in the cannabis plant. Depending on the strain, a plant may have more or less of one or the other. I read this helpful analogy online. You can think of strains of cannabis plants like breeds of a dog or varieties of apples. They can have very different qualities, but they are nevertheless still dogs or apples. More often than not, plants with high quantities of THC contain less CBD, or vice versa. Modern farming techniques and genetic engineering are helping cannabis cultivators dramatically increase the quantities of both of these cannabinoids. Today, we're going to look at strains recommended for MS specifically. And it's important to know also that not all dispensaries have all strains, so it's good to have a few in mind when we shop. I'll also note here that recent surveys show that many people with MS already use cannabis, and most of those who currently do not would consider it if it were legal in their state. In states where medicinal cannabis is legal, we can obtain a medical approval from our doctors or you can also use an online cannabis doctor who will meet with you virtually, which is very convenient. A medical approval allows us to purchase cannabis products from a medically endorsed pharmacy or dispensary. If you live in a state where recreational use is legal, cannabis is even easier to obtain and a medical approval is not required. That said, even though I live in a state where recreational use is approved, I still like having a medicinal approval on hand as it does allow me some tax savings and the ability to shop at medical-only dispensaries. This is important for me because high CBD products are more difficult to manufacture, so less are made. And when recreational cannabis was legalized, I suddenly had a difficult time consistently finding what I needed at a general dispensary. 
When we move into looking at strains, know that sometimes there's not much choice for strains when purchasing cannabis in tincture, edible, or capsule form. But it's actually pretty easy to make your own edibles, tinctures, and even butters to cook with. So once you find a strain you like that manages your symptoms well, learning some simple ways to make your own like I do can not only save money, but also open up many more choices for how you want to consume your cannabis. I will also note here that smoking cannabis, or smoking anything for that matter, is not recommended for those of us with MS. I've been told by several doctors who support my use of cannabis that smoking, even if just cannabis, can negatively impact our disease trajectory and interfere with the efficacy of our disease-modifying therapies. That said, I do still have a vape pen, and I'll tell you why. I don't use it very often, but when I need immediate relief and can't wait for an edible tincture or capsule to kick in, that's when I use it. The positives of smoking are that you will feel the effects fairly strongly immediately, and they won't last as long. Okay, moving into strains. We talked earlier about cannabis sativa and cannabis indica and why it's important to understand the differences and why we might prefer one over the other given our unique symptoms. There are also hybrids, which are a blend. Sativa strains are in general energizing with uplifting cerebral effects that pair well with physical activity, social gatherings, and creative projects. When I use sativa, I'm very happy and carefree. I chit-chat with others and find that I'm super creative. Frankly, they are my favorite. Indica strains are physically sedating, perfect for relaxing with a movie or to enhance sleep. When I use indica, I do sleep well, but my thoughts can be darker, and I do experience what some call couch lock, where I just want to be sedentary. That said, I know a lot of people who swear by indica and use it exclusively. So while I can share my personal opinions, cannabis is kind of like our MS. It's very unique and only we know what's best for us. Hybrid strains are a balance of sativa and indica, so those are my preference for sleep. I want to reiterate here though that strains may impact each of us uniquely. So it's important to remember that and keep in mind as well that not all sativa will energize us and not all indica will sedate us. So finding a strain we like that works for us can take time and experimentation, which is why I believe going to a quality dispensary with a knowledgeable staff can be so helpful. I was fortunate to learn a lot from a great dispensary called Elemental in San Jose, California. That's also where I received my incredibly helpful one-on-one -on -one consult that helped me get started in a safe and responsible manner. When going to a dispensary for the first time, it's wise to at least have an idea of what we're looking for. So we do need to do some research and reflection first. First of all, there are a few questions to ask ourselves to help us figure out what type of product we're looking for. One, what are the symptoms we're trying to relieve? And two, which sort of feeling do we want? That will help steer us in the right direction to consider sativa, indica, or a hybrid. We will also want to consider if we want a THC-dominant strain or a CBD-dominant strain. THC-dominant strains are primarily chosen by consumers seeking a potent euphoric experience. These strains are also selected by patients treating pain, depression, anxiety, insomnia, and more. If we tend to feel anxious with THC-dominant strains or dislike other side effects associated with THC, it's recommended to try a strain with higher levels of CBD. CBD-dominant strains contain lower amounts of THC and are widely used by those highly sensitive to THC or people who need clear-headed symptom relief. Balanced THC and CBD strains contain similar levels of THC and CBD, offering mild euphoria alongside symptom relief. These tend to be a good choice for novice consumers seeking an introduction to cannabis. There are many suggestions for the right strain for MS treatment. Most are based either on anecdotal reports or analysis of the way the strain hits most users. For example, we may see an energizing sativa like Sojay Hayes recommended for MS patients who suffer severe fatigue, 
a high CBD, low THC hybrid like catatonic recommended for those who have to deal with severe muscle spasms or sledgehammer, which is packed with THC that lets us simply forget about our disease entirely for a bit. Before I go on to discuss more of the highly recommended strains for MS, I also want to mention here something I've never personally used but is available many places around the world. There is an option called Sativex that is specially aimed at treating severe muscular symptoms that some of us with MS experience. Sativex is a cannabis-based mouth spray made from the actual cannabis plant and is formulated to contain all of the THC and CBD you'd normally find in a one-to-one hybrid strain. The mouth spray works slowly, like an edible. It's become extremely popular amongst MS patients, particularly since it's covered under health insurance. But, here's the catch, not in the U.S., just 28 other countries, for now. So, what's most recommended here in the U.S. is to find a strain with similar content and profiles. And I'll showcase a few here briefly. The first is called Harlequin. The THC-CBD ratio in this sativa-dominant strain isn't always one-to-one like Sativex. It can vary considerably, sometimes hitting 5 to 2 in favor of CBD. But it's not going to blow us away with its THC content or the resultant high. Instead, we'll experience a mellow mood elevation and noticeable pain relief. Just the right mix for MS patients trying to get through the day and evening without suffering. Harlequin is very good at alleviating joint stiffness and pain, and it's also excellent at relieving anxiety. This strain is often recommended for the whole body pain of fibromyalgia and MS, fighting pain without the strong high or fatigue that can prevent work or productive relaxation. Another good choice with a THC to CBD ratio that's usually close to one to one with a THC content that hovers right around 10% is Sour Tsunami. However, we'll sometimes see this flower with much higher CBD content in the 20 to 30% range. Those CBD heavy buds might be more suitable for those who react badly to high THC levels because of severe anxiety caused by their MS. This strain was actually bred by someone who suffered from debilitating back pain and it works just as well on the muscle pain and stiffness associated with MS. It's also effective for seizures, stress, insomnia, making sour tsunami a great mellow choice without inducing couch lock or an inability to perform daily functions. Critical mass. This strain is indica dominant and averages around 20% THC with lower but significant CBD content providing a clear-minded but body-slowing experience, which can notably ease the muscle pain of MS. We might not be able to fully function in the workplace or clean our house from top to bottom while using this strain, as we may even feel a little lethargic or experience couch lock, but it's a very good choice for nighttime for our MS pain, stress, depression, and anxiety. Permafrost. This sativa-heavy strain is high in THC and relatively low in CBD, so it's the least similar to Sativex 1-to-1 ratio. It's a good choice, though, for folks with MS who want a stronger, euphoric hit to boost our spirits and productivity. Why permafrost instead of so many other possibilities? Primarily because of its extremely potent ability to help us overcome the stress and depression brought on by MS. We won't experience massive pain relief from permafrost, but it does relax the body and as a result can loosen the joints and muscles impacted by MS. Watch out though, its high THC content has a tendency to bring on the munchies. Sojay Haze. Users report this strain to be an energizing and uplifting sativa. Great for those of us whose primary symptom is fatigue. Sojay haze may increase energy levels. It can also send the body into a relaxed euphoria. As a result, it is a potentially useful daytime strain. Users also report it keeps the mind focused and creative. Super Sour Diesel. This is a popular sativa-dominant strain. It offers energy-inducing properties of sativa and deep pain relief, which can be a great combination for us. This is a strong THC strain, so just a little goes a long way. 
And lastly, I want to mention here RSO, Rick Simpson Oil, because this is also something many people recommend for MS. RSO is known for having a high concentration of THC and is generally made with indica-heavy strains. This oil is very easy to cook with, so it's easy to use to make your own edibles at home. I use RSO in my no-bake oatmeal balls. Just know that RSO typically is not high in CBD, although you can even get 100% CBD RSO from Lazarus Naturals. So if you're wanting the benefit of both CBD and THC and using RSO, you may need to supplement with CBD capsules or tinctures like I do to even things out since they do work best in tandem. Since the CBD and THC content can vary even within the same strain, be sure to look at the ratios and percentages that are clearly labeled at reputable dispensaries. And don't be shy asking for help. The folks who work there are there to help, and I've never felt rushed or stupid for asking clarifying questions. On the contrary, most bud tenders love to talk about cannabis and are extremely caring people who want to help us find the relief we are seeking. I mentioned earlier that it's easy to make our own products, and I'll quickly mention a few here. Know that a quick Google search will yield many more options and detailed recipes. First, one of the easiest ways is to use cannabis flowers or buds to make oil or butter that you can cook with. I highly prefer my new Magic Butter Maker over the old school method of using a crock pot. The Magic Butter Maker is efficient, manages all stages of the process for you, and makes the magic butter without creating a lot of aroma, which is important when you want to make it indoors and live with people or pets who might not appreciate the smell. With the Magic Butter Maker, I can make cookies or even tinctures. I haven't even begun to explore all the options and functionalities in the recipe booklet that came with it yet. So far, I've also made special gummies, tasty chocolate bark, and oatmeal nut butter balls. I get a small tasty treat every night after dinner, and that gets me settled into a state of relaxation, so I'm ready to maximize my restorative sleep. One thing we haven't talked about in this episode yet is topicals, so I do want to briefly mention it here. Yes, there are cannabis topicals. I want to be sure to mention that topicals, even if they contain THC, will not cause users to experience a high because we do not have cannabinoid receptors in our skin. So for that reason, I feel comfortable using my topical lotions for localized pain whenever I need to. I personally have found that the topical products on the market are quite expensive, though, for what you get, and they are often very low dosage and not quite enough to combat my level of pain. Several years ago, a dear friend taught me how to make my own full-flower cannabud cream. You can find recipes online for making a wide variety of cannabis-based creams and lotions. I also add to the recipe the best essential oils for MS. This not only makes it smell divine, but the added medicinal properties of the essential oils pack a powerful punch of additional healing. We'll do a separate episode on essential oils soon. I'm working with an expert on developing that content now, so stay tuned. I want to finish out this episode by sharing a little bit more about one way medicinal cannabis helps me. If you struggle with anxiety like I do and regularly ruminate on various topics, I can tell you that cannabis provides incredible relief. I'm not sure I would be getting through everything 2020 has brought our way without it. The only other time in my life that I have experienced such peace and clarity of thought is through a handful of cranial sacral sessions, which is a therapy we'll dedicate an episode to once my cranial sacral therapist is available again. Cranial sacral therapy focuses on calming the central nervous system and is very powerful. But even then, as I mentioned, I have only been able to achieve that level of serenity in a handful of our sessions together over the years. Yet I'm now able to achieve it almost nightly with cannabis. And this is really important because when cannabis quiets my mind, it is only then that I can really think deeply. I arrive at conclusions much easier. I know what I want in a way that is not fallible. I feel very much connected to my body. And as someone who is learning that the most important thing I can do as someone living with MS 
is to listen to the signals my body sends, that proves to me that cannabis is a very important medicine for me on my quest to live well with MS. My hope is that after listening to this episode, you will first have acquired basic knowledge of the history of cannabis and why it has been so controversial of a legality issue in the past, as well as why that is slowly changing over time. Second, that you understand the healing capabilities of cannabis and its components, CBD and THC, and how it might be able to help you with the MS symptoms you experience. Third, that you understand enough about cannabis to go to a dispensary and ask the right questions to find something to try for your personal needs. And ultimately, I hope if you do talk to your doctor and decide trying cannabis is right for you, that you find the relief you are seeking. Following this and every podcast, I offer Zoom sessions for our Patreon listeners to discuss the episode's topic together. I hope you will join us. Become a patron on patreon.com slash msflock for the Zoom session schedule and invitation links. Membership is only $1 a month to access these important flockings and more content. Flock members, I look forward to seeing you Saturday where we can talk about any questions you may have as well as your own experience with medicinal cannabis. As of now, the plan is for Dr. Susan Payrovi to be here for the next episode to talk about best practices for nutrition for MS. She'll be at the flock meeting after the episode airs as well. So if you are a listener that has wanted to meet Dr. Payrovi, this is a great time to join the flock so you can join the meeting next week. As always, I encourage all listeners to reach out with questions, comments, for future podcast topics, or guest ideas via email to mymsflock at gmail.com. And lastly, remember, as we travel through life with MS, we're certain to hit some turbulence. We'll get through it, especially if we're flying together, supporting one another. Thank you for listening, and until next time, be well.